Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardioners. This is Amit Goyal. Today, we are so excited to bring to you an important episode that discusses the increasingly recognized association between amphetamine use disorder and heart failure. I'm thrilled to be joined by Drs. Jesse Holtzman and Megan McLaughlin. Jesse is one of the chief residents in internal medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, soon to be cardiology fellow there as well, as well as one of the current house faculty leaders within the Cardioners Academy. Welcome, Jesse. Thanks so much for the introduction. For today's discussion, we are also joined by Dr. Megan McLaughlin, one of the spectacular cardiology fellows at the University of California, San Francisco, as well as a recent recipient of the CardioNerd Scholarship Award. Megan, take it away. Thank you, Amit and Jesse, and welcome to all of the CardioNerds tuning in. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Soraya Azari. Dr. Azari is an associate clinical professor at UCSF based at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, performing clinical work in hospital medicine, primary care, HIV medicine, and addiction specialty services. She is also the co-founder of the Heart Plus Clinic, which we will discuss in more detail shortly. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Azari. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Our second expert discussing today is Dr. Jonathan Davis. Dr. Davis is an associate professor at UCSF and the director of the Heart Failure Program at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, as well as a co-founder of the Heart Plus Clinic. Dr. Davis has received numerous accolades by residents and fellows for his teaching. We are so fortunate to be joined by two unparalleled educators today. Thank you so much. Thrilled to be here. So in California, methamphetamine-associated heart failure admissions increased from 1.2% of all heart failure hospitalizations in 2008 to a striking 8% of all heart failure admissions in 2018. Substance use disorders more broadly are thought to complicate at least 15% of all heart failure hospitalizations, and amphetamine use has been shown to be an independent predictor of heart failure readmission across the country. Today, we'll review the pathophysiology of stimulant-associated cardiomyopathy, highlight treatment options for stimulant use disorder, and discuss novel models of co-management of heart failure and substance use disorder. So let's start with a case. You're called down to the emergency department to admit a patient to the cardiology service. This patient is a 43-year-old man currently experiencing homelessness with a history of long-standing injection amphetamine use, untreated HCV, and hypertension, who presented with three weeks of progressively worsening dyspnea on exertion, fatigue, orthopnea, and lower extremity swelling. His initial vital signs are notable for a blood pressure of 175 over 110, a heart rate of 108, with oxygen saturation 94% on 3 liters nasal cannula. His exam is notable for a comfortable though tachypnic appearing gentleman with diffuse crackles throughout the bilateral lung fields, elevated JVP, a distended though soft abdomen, with 2 plus pitting edema to the mid-thighs. He was last admitted to the hospital two months prior, and at that time was newly diagnosed with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. His initial TTE was notable for an EF of 15 to 20%, an LV diameter of 5.8 centimeters, spontaneous echo contrast without definitive LV thrombus, moderate TR, moderate MR, moderate RV cavity dilation, and mild to moderately elevated RVSP at 54 millimeters of mercury. He was discharged to a shelter where he had his medication stolen one week after discharge and therefore has been unable to take any medication since that time. 
Unfortunately, this is an increasingly common clinical scenario encountered on our cardiology service. To start broadly, Dr. Davis, would you mind walking us through the most common clinical cardiac manifestations of stimulant use disorders that you see in your clinical practice? Of course. Thank you. So the way I think about it is to take a little more broadly. So the cardiac manifestations of stimulant use make more sense when you think in general terms about what the stimulant actually is doing. So you're getting persistent adrenergic stimulation, so a lot of unopposed and upregulated catecholamines, as well as vasoconstriction. So some of the things you're going to see that are very common, but earlier on, hypertension, tachycardia, that could be sinus tachycardia, it could be a pathologic tachyarrhythmia, and acute MI. And the acute MI can be either from vasospasm from the stimulant or actually from coronary disease. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Estimate use is a big risk factor for the development of coronary disease. Then ongoing use obviously leads to larger complications of cardiomyopathy, pulmonary hypertension, aortic dissection, and sudden cardiac deaths. Dr. David, thank you for going through that. It sounds like stimulant use disorder certainly has pervasive manifestations in the cardiovascular system. Are there any specific features that you might look for on echocardiogram for a given patient where you are worried about methamphetamine use as a possible ideology? Unfortunately, there's nothing that's really pathognomonic here, and it depends kind of how far along in their disease progression that they are, but there certainly are some generalities that I can speak to. Most commonly, we see either a biventricular dilated cardiomyopathy or pulmonary hypertension with preserved LV function. For those with cardiomyopathy, the LV is often dilated, but not always, but typically is. And depending on the chronicity, you could see the left ventricular wall still being thick, especially in the setting of hypertension, LVH, um, but also thin just through uh, remodeling and extensive uh, chronic disease. Especially a more long-standing picture, you look for features of low stroke volume, such as compensatory tachycardia and poor aortic valve opening. The global dilated cardiomyopathy also predisposes folks to LV thrombi, but not always. And then lastly, just those with pulmonary hypertension, it is most commonly group one PAH, that uh, the stimulant use puts you at risk for. So you typically see a dilated hypokinetic RV with that and a small underfilled left ventricle. Great. Thank you so much for highlighting some of the mechanisms behind stimulant use and the associated cardiomyopathies. As you mentioned, we know that methamphetamines lead to excess level of catecholamines and sympathetic activity. Dr. Davis, is this the main mechanism by which amphetamines lead to cardiomyopathy or are there direct cardiotoxic effects that have been demonstrated? In general, how much do we know about the mechanisms by which methamphetamine use leads to cardiomyopathy? It's interesting because there really has a whole lot of research in this area. The short answer is, is yes. The toxicity is thought to be multifactorial related to direct myocardial toxicity for the stimulant, as well as excess catecholamines from methamphetamine-induced increase in neurotransmitters, specifically serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine, and increase in concentrations in those. Uh, there are other direct effects including generation of reactive uh, oxygen species, mitochondrial dysfunction, increased apoptosis, and myocardial ischemia related to the microvascular dysfunction and vasospasm. What we really don't know is why some people will get a severe biventricular cardiomyopathy and other people tend to get pulmonary arterial hypertension. It's interesting, you don't typically see someone who has severe PAH as well as LB dysfunction. It tends to be one or the other. And given the range of these different manifestations, there's a hypothesis that there's kind of a, a two-hit scenario here where you have the stimulant use uh, and then also potentially a genetic predisposition. It's been a little bit more, but not totally flushed out in the pulmonary arterial hypertension space. 
There was one good review, Ramirez et al., in a journal called Current Opinion in Pulmonary Medicine back in 2018 about a single polymorphism that has to do with drug metabolism. I seem to be associated with a high percentage of methamphetamine-associated pulmonary hypertension, but not as much in, in the cardiomyopathy. There was a big review in the Journal of the American Heart Association in 2020 that references a study from 1997 from the Journal of Drug Metabolism and Disposition suggesting a genetic predisposition to cardiomyopathy in patients with a CYP2D6 enzyme issue, which is the initial rate-limiting step during drug metabolism, metanephrine. But again, that hasn't really been flushed out more recently or larger trials. Thanks, Dr. Davis, for highlighting some of the research in this area. And it sounds like there's still a lot that we have to learn. So our resident goes down to the emergency department and agrees that this patient will require inpatient admission for acute decompensated heart failure and volume overload. Over the following few days, the patient is aggressively diuresed and achieves euvolemia, and the cardiology team restarts GDMT and works to uptitrate the medications to target doses. What are the mainstays of treatment for stimulant-associated cardiomyopathy, and how, if at all, does it differ from treatment for cardiomyopathy attributable to other etiologies? Great question. Thank you. So the basis of treatment is no different than any other cardiomyopathy. It's GDMT, guideline-directed medical therapy for the treatment of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, with RNA, beta blocker, MRA, and estrogen 2 inhibitor. You know, we'll t- I can talk a little bit uh, if we want about some of the intricacies of that in this population, but the goal is GDMT. The other key thing is reduction, if not cessation, of stimulant use. These two things really go hand in hand. There was a nice paper by uh, Schur et al. in Jack Hartfield in 2017 that showed that cessation of methamphetamine uh, use is associated with improvement in cardiac function and symptoms. So we really want to try to get folks using as little stimulant as possible, if not, not at all. There is an issue that's come up historically about the safety of non-selective beta blockers versus selective beta blockers in this. And Wilson et al. did a nice review on the concerns of this um, beta block use in the Canadian Medical Association Journal last year in 2022. And a lot of this stems from 2014, the American Heart Association published guidelines on the management of NSTEMI that advised against using beta blockers in acute myocardial infarction in patients with signs of acute stimulant intoxication unless they were receiving a concurrent coronary vasodilator. And the concern was that beta blockers could lead to unopposed alpha receptor stimulation, which could lead to more vasoconstriction without compensatory smooth muscle relaxation. However, subsequent studies and experience have really shown, though, that beta blockers, be it selective or non-selective, are absolutely safe with stimulant use. So this has really been debunked that you have to use carvedilol over a pure beta receptor uh, antagonist like metoprolol succinate. And then there was, just to go along with that, a nice paper by Bonaggi et al., in Jack Hart's failure in 2019 about the safety of carpetalol and cocaine users. The last thing I'll say about this is that prescribing the GDMT is easy. It's getting it to the patient consistently. That's the real issue here. You know, this person's on house, his medications were stolen. The, this is where getting, getting the meds and thinking about what's going to happen when the patient is discharged. The multidisciplinary team, community partners, things like bubble packs, so prepackaged medications as opposed to individual pill bottles. All of these things, thinking holistically, are really critical. Yeah, that's really helpful, Dr. Davis. Thanks for going over that, especially with regards to the specific population. But, you know, we still want to make sure we're not missing an alternative diagnosis, especially of a potentially reversible ideology for heart failure, while for our patient, the social history could certainly be consistent with stimulant use cardiomyopathy. We wouldn't want to have premature closure in this diagnosis. So when would you consider further workup for other ideologies like 
ischemia in patients who have, have FRAS uh, and ongoing stimulant use? And when would you think about pursuing left and right heart catheterization in patients like this one? I think this is such a great question because this comes up all the time when you have something that seems like an obvious etiology for your, your problem to kind of get blinders on and go down a certain rabbit hole. But it's really easy to presume that all cardiomyopathy and those who use stimulants is due to the stimulant use. And that's really just not the case. When someone comes in with a new diagnosis of heart failure, just like any other new diagnosis, if the patient had pulmonary hypertension, uh, for example, instead of a cardiomyopathy, you have to take a step back and, and do your normal due diligence. And we can't let the stimulant use bias our clinical reasoning or our treatment of uh, the disease. So any new diagnosis of heart failure should be treated as such with an ischemic evaluation as indicated. Now, keep in mind that coronary disease is really common and also that stimulant use drives more coronary disease. So just because the stimulant use can cause a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy can absolutely lead to multivessel coronary disease. Remember, stimulant use causes hypertension. It causes vasoconstriction, microvascular dysfunction. All of these things predispose independently to the development of coronary disease. And I very commonly do see patients coming in in this exact scenario who do have multivessel disease that need a conversation and, and intervention potentially for that disease. Um, so I very commonly will at least get a left heart cath, left heart catheterization. Right heart catheterization kind of depends on the clinical scenario, how advanced their left heart disease is and whether or not it will guide management. But you do have to make sure you're not thinking um, just pigeonholed with the stimulant use. All great points, Dr. Davis. So I'm hearing that sticking with the basics, we know that GDMT works. We should work up patients for alternate causes of cardiomyopathy. These are key points, as well as treating the underlying stimulant use disorder. In order to appropriately screen for adverse effects in treatment of stimulant use disorder, it's crucial to understand how patients are using stimulants. For instance, via what route, with what frequency, and what quantity. So now turning to Dr. Azari, two questions for you. The first is, how do you recommend that clinicians take a history when asking patients about their history of substance use disorder? And the second is, what are common routes of administration and the associated adverse effects that clinicians should look for when treating patients with stimulant use disorder? Great questions. So the first tip that I give to every person I work with when you're taking a substance use history is to ask permission by just saying, is it okay if I ask you a personal question or is it okay if I ask you sensitive questions about drugs and alcohol? It's a really nice way to create a mood where the patient feels safe because this is really stigmatized, these behaviors. And so there's a lot of shame and embarrassment and reluctance to disclose what might be happening in their life. So the first tip is to ask permission. The second tip is to even normalize the behavior and saying something to the effect of, you know, substance use is common and I have a lot of patients struggling with substance use and I'm hoping that I can help you if that's something that applies. And just, again, communicating that you're there to take care of them. The third tip is to, when you're taking a substance use history, instead of just saying, do you use alcohol, tobacco, or drugs, uh, maybe actually using specific names uh, when you're going through your drug list. So saying things like, do you use heroin? Do you use fentanyl? Do you use crystal? Do you use crack? Do you use speed? Do you use Tina? You don't have to know every name for drugs because they are innumerable, but there are local names for drugs in, depending on where in the country you live. And so you should 
do your due diligence to sort of learn about local patterns of drug use in the place that uh, you're practicing. And that can just influence how you collect your history. The other thing is to ask them how they're using. And most commonly, people are either inhaling or injecting their drugs, but you can also snort your drugs, um, you can swallow your drugs, um, you can plug drugs, um, which refers to rectal use of drugs. So there's really innumerable ways to use drugs. And I say to people, I'm asking you this because I want to know if it could impact your health and ways that we can keep you safe. The other thing that you have to do is figure out if they just have risky use or if they actually have a substance use disorder. The signature of a substance use disorder are consequences. So you want to ask, like, has your drug use caused any problems in your life? You know, most commonly, if you're a cardiologist and you are taking care of a person that has heart failure, you want to make sure they understand that that could actually be related without blaming them. But that's a significant consequence. And that would help establish that this person probably does have a substance use disorder, right? If I know that I have heart failure from my substance use, but I continue to use using despite consequences is just a real signature that there, in fact, is an addiction here. And then the final thing um, that you want to ask about is treatment. You know, have you ever seeked out treatment for your substance use disorder, assuming you have one? Um, this is a nice opportunity to find out about periods of abstinence and a lot of the strength that that person has. For many individuals, they'll tell me, like, I was not using drugs for 13 years of my life, but then I lost my job and I lost my partner and I've been in relapse the past three years. And so you have a lot of things that you can affirm, which is to essentially congratulate the patient on so that they feel their own self-efficacy in discussing possible future recovery. Then the last thing, of course, is, is this person at risk for harm? So a lot of people that are using stimulants may also be using opioids. Opioid use disorder is a life-threatening condition. And so you want to ask the person, have you ever seen anybody overdose? Have you ever overdosed yourself? Have you ever been past a pipe that maybe had residue of fentanyl in it and like you accidentally passed out? Really finding out if they should be carrying naloxone and what other things they could be at risk for in the short term. Thanks, Dr. Rosari, for going through these really high-yield tips about how to ask patients about their history of substance use disorder. As we've discussed, patients admitted with stimulant-associated cardiomyopathy have worse long-term outcomes and increased risk of hospital readmission. In fact, we saw that with this patient in that he was unfortunately readmitted with acute decompensated heart failure within two months of his prior discharge. In discussing with the patient, he had returned to using stimulants after his prior hospital discharge. Dr. Azari, what pharmacologic and behavioral therapies are available to treat stimulant use disorder that we could offer to a patient who's motivated to make a change? And specifically, can you talk to us about the basics of contingency management? Sure. So first, we'll talk about the pharmacologic treatments for stimulant use disorders. The most important pearl is that there's no FDA-approved medications to treat stimulant use disorders. There is a lot of off-label use of certain pharmacologics to treat stimulant use disorder. And I'll talk specifically about methamphetamine use disorder because that's something that we see commonly, especially on the West Coast. There's been a lot of talk of mirtazapine, bupropion, naltrexone, and then finally stimulants. And the short version is that there is evidence to suggest that use of mirtazapine is associated with decreased use of methamphetamine. 
And so that is dosed at, you start at uh, 15 milligrams at bedtime and it can increase to 30 milligrams at bedtime. There are some side effects associated with mirtazapine, including weight gain, but this can be really helpful, especially if a person is also having problems with sleep and also having some type of mood disorder. But recently, there was an article that was published in NIGEM on the ADAPT2 trial from Trevedi et al., and that was about the use of IM naltrexone combined with bupropion XR. And what they showed, this was a, a randomized placebo-controlled trial, and they showed that the percentage of people that responded to the pharmacologic intervention was about 13% in the placebo arm. The response was 2%. The response was defined as essentially having most of your urine samples be non-reactive for stimulants. So there was an absolute difference of about 11 percentage points between the pharmacologic arm and the placebo arm. This would give you a number needed to treat of nine individuals. And so based on this trial, there are people that are using this form of treatment for our patients as well. And then finally, there's been lots of interest in stimulants including things like methylphenidate or list dexamphetamine or mixed amphetamine salts. And I will just summarize and say that the data is mixed. There are some studies showing efficacy and some that do not. And so general practice now is that people are not prescribed stimulants for their methamphetamine use disorder. I do see people prescribing it if the person has a comorbid diagnosis of ADHD. Now, let's switch over to the behavioral treatments, which have wonderful evidence. And I want to speak specifically about something called contingency management. Contingency management is a type of behavioral treatment, and it's based on operant conditioning, which is the basic premise where you pick a target behavior, something that you want to happen more commonly, and you give a reward when you see that target behavior perform. And the key to contingency management is that you give the right reward and it's of sufficient magnitude and you give it shortly after performance of the target behavior so that the client or the patient really understands the association between the target behavior and the reward. And also that you reward the behavior every time um, so that there is consistency. And contingency management has been studied for decades at this point and it is shown to have a really powerful effect, especially for the treatment of stimulant use disorders. And the best data that we have is some real-world data from the VA where they have just implemented this behavioral treatment for people with stimulant use disorders. And so they had a beautiful article that was published in 2018 in Drug and Alcohol Dependence by De Filippis et al. And they essentially showed that in their 94 programs operating at the VA, the majority of people were there for stimulant use disorders. And they followed these people over time and they looked at the actual urines that were collected and 91% of the urines that were collected were negative for the target substance that the person was aiming to stop. So we know that contingency management works and it's just a matter of finding funding for contingency management programs. There's also some criticism that the effect does not last beyond the actual CM intervention. And I should point out that in a CM program, functionally, you usually come twice per week and you give a point of care urine and that comes back in five minutes. 
when we see that the drug is not present on the urine toxicology test, that's when you receive the reward. And so the person comes twice a week. Usually that lasts for about 12 weeks. And the criticism is that, well, after the 12 weeks is up, some people return to their substance use. But I think it's an unfair criticism because the actual treatment has ended, right? Um, so just the way if you were taking atorvastatin and you stopped the atorvastatin, following that, you would expect to see the cholesterol rise. So contingency management is really effective and it's a mainstay of treatment. And it's just a matter of implementation and funding. Well, Dr. Rosari, that is super helpful. And for our listeners, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that again, because I think not only are we going to be seeing more and more of stimulant use disorder in our patients with cardiovascular illness, but many of us just don't have formalized training in addressing it effectively. So it is really helpful to be familiar with strategies and tools and also to be aware of uh, what resources we can refer our patients to when, when they're needed. Getting back to our patients, thanks to our wonderful cardiology team. He has successfully been diuresed to euvolemia and started on guideline-directed medical therapy. The addiction care team was consulted during this admission, and thanks to the expert motivational interviewing uh, under their care, they were able to elicit that the patient is motivated to cease amphetamine use with a goal of improving his overall health and heart failure. He decided, however, that he did not wish to pursue pharmacotherapy for stimulant use disorder at this time, as he is reasonably worried about the number of new medications that he's already responsible for taking. However, he is interested in pursuing a contingency management program as an outpatient. So Dr. Davis, can you tell us a bit about the Heart Plus Clinic located at the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital? And do you think this would be a valuable resource for our patients? Thank you. So we're very excited about this program that we started at the beginning of 2020, though really the genesis of that was about a year, year and a half earlier, just myself on the cardiology side, talking with folks on the addiction side. And we're incredibly fortunate to have a formal addiction care team in the hospital to partner with. And we were seeing that this patient population, the patients who have a cardiomyopathy, patients who have stimulant use disorder, that they were very frequently getting most of their medical care in the acute care setting, the emergency department or hospitalization, and really had suboptimal outpatient care engagement. At their show rate to cardiology clinic or primary care clinic was stereotypically quite low. And so we sought to create a program that could more specifically target this patient population in a meaningful way. And we called it the Heart Plus Clinic. And it was exactly for patients like the one that we're discussing here with stimulant use and heart failure. So it's a multidisciplinary clinic where there's co-management with addiction medicine and cardiology. And as Dr. already alluded to earlier, it's incredibly important that you're able to link the stimulant use and the heart disease together for the patient that one causes the other. And we were recruiting patients who were in the hospital with complications of stimulant use and with complications of their heart failure. And we recruited in the clinic that would be twice a week for a 12-week program and really be anchored as well in contingency management, which has the most meaningful data to reduce stimulant use. So patients would come to clinic twice a week to meet with the addiction provider and do contingency management. And they would meet with a cardiologist at least once a week, if not every other week, to talk about their heart failure. And the linking of these things together was incredibly important so that when the patient would come to clinic, that they would see addiction provider and see the cardiology provider and, and have that association and also have that rapport and that relationship that can build over the 12 weeks 
to have that connection to help them show up more, hopefully use less and take their heart failure medications more. And we would talk about heart failure symptoms. We would talk about their stimulant use in each of the two clinical encounters. And a lot of what I did was obviously prescribe and think about GDMT, but we spent most of our cardiology visits addressing their barriers to getting medication, barriers to taking the medications and navigating the polypharmacy. And one thing that we were hoping for, but hadn't necessarily planned on because we didn't have social worker case management or things like that in our current iteration of Heart Plus. But the folks that engaged in the program wound up using less demand, used more heart failure medications, and their rates of clinic um, engagement went way up, and their rates of acute care utilization, emergency room admission, for example, went way down. And as a kind of a secondary benefit, which we were thrilled to see but hadn't totally anticipated, is that they started showing up to other visits more, such as primary care more, they engage with their social worker, case manager more to make strides on housing, for example. So there are a lot of downstream benefits of this clinic that we were thrilled to see. But the continuity and rapport over the program uh, was critical. And then as Dr. Zari mentioned, at the end of the program, when the contingency management ends, we did a little coda, uh, we called it. So for another four weeks, we'd see the folks once a week just to kind of ease them out of the contingency management Heart Plus program. We did a little mini graduation with diplomas and little certificates to commemorate their conclusion of the program, which patients really appreciated, took their photo to wrap things up. But it worked really well. And the, the key is the multidisciplinary aspect and the key is putting everyone together. Now, there's a lot of bias um, on the part of patients looking at healthcare providers, judging them over their drug use. Um, and there's also bias on the side of the providers saying, oh, this person's just going to be discharged and not follow up or do X, Y, or Z. And so there's this bi-directional bias that we really have to address. And the Heart Plus Clinic also really helped not just the providers feel more engaged on the inpatient side that there was an option, but even providers in clinic that, oh, this person hasn't never showed up before. Oh, but now they're coming and this could work. Um, they kind of changed that bias and flipped that around. So there was a lot of things that went well with this program that we're very excited about. Thanks, Dr. Davis, for telling us about the, the origins and results of Heart Plus, which has been such a valuable resource for our patients at San Francisco General Hospital. Heart Plus is clearly a novel model of care, combining outpatient care of heart failure and stimulant use disorder in one co-located clinic. But for clinicians practicing outside of San Francisco, do you have any recommendations for how we can connect patients to evidence-based therapies for their stimulant use disorder? Great question. It's worthwhile noting that SAMHSA, which is spelled S-A-M-H-S-A, uh, it's the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. That's the federal body that shepherds behavioral health and substance use treatment services. And they actually have a national helpline that a patient could call themselves, 1-800-662-HELP. But you also, as a clinician, they have an online treatment program locator where you can put in the zip code where you work and see a list of treatment programs. They should also describe the services that they offer. And I encourage everyone to check that out. The other thing that you can do if you are a clinician and maybe you're just that amazing cardiologist who wants to do the work and start the mirtazapine, but you can't remember the dose. You can actually call our substance use warm line, which is 855-300-3595. It's a clinician support line where you can ask questions about substance use disorders. And it's staffed by lots of colleagues that I know, and it's a really useful resource for the provider. 
And the other thing is to be aware of harm reduction services in your community. And so if you actually go to harmreduction.org, there's also a, a locator for things like needle exchange services. And that's a key component of addiction treatment is harm reduction. It's just as valuable and just as life-saving as the medications or behavioral treatments that we do, right? And it essentially means that you will accept that the person may need to continue to use that drug to survive. And so you just want to make sure they do it safely. And so please check out harmreduction.org. And I'll give you one last resource, which is uh, the fact that there's a hotline called Never Use Alone. And you can Google that. You can give the patient the number. It's essentially a resource that was created to try and prevent overdose death. Again, this is less common of a problem in people that are primary stimulant use disorders. But at least here in San Francisco, we do see accidental overdoses in people that identify as primary stimulant use disorders. So for anybody that has a stimulant use disorder, I'm still talking to them about not using alone, having other people nearby, keeping themselves safe. So that's the short list of resources that I'll share with you. Thanks, Dr. Rosari. I think it's really helpful for us to have a sense of what resources there are out there for our patients who are treating who have stimulant use disorder. So for patients like ours who are motivated to stop using amphetamines, what can we tell them, if anything, about the chance of recovery of cardiac function and stimulant use disorders? What is the likelihood of seeing improvements in LVEF and chamber size with cessation of amphetamines? So a lot depends on how much damage was already done by the time you're meeting them. That being said, not sure at all study from Jack Cardsoy that I mentioned earlier, they had 23 patients in that cohort who were able to completely stop using stimulants. And almost all of them saw an improvement, uh, a meaningful improvement in ejection fraction by a year or so, follow-up was 12-ish months. Um, and patients in that cohort were sick. The average ejection fraction was under 20%, and the average uh, left ventricular internal dimension diastole was almost 7 centimeters, 6.8 centimeters. So they were sick, and they did better just by stopping stimulant use. So there is a potential to see uh, reverse remodeling, to see things get better, to see the ejection fraction come back up. But you have to be aggressive in terms of both, like I said, getting rid of the things that are hurting the heart, the cement use, and being proactive with GDMT. But there's definitely a possibility. Some of it is linked to how much uh, myocardial fibrosis there already is at the time of that you're stopping stimulant use and starting GDMT. There's a study ongoing that we're doing looking at cardiac MRI uh, on these folks to see how much scar is present and, and how that pretends remodeling, reverse remodeling. But you want to be as aggressive as possible. But there is a chance they could get better if they stop. The only thing I would add is that we had the nice opportunity to follow our small cohorts for Heart Plus. And we've also been able to see an improvement in their ejection fraction from about 23% to 52% after their 12 weeks in the Heart Plus program. And so we felt pretty good about that because, again, we were sort of treating the underlying cause, which was the stimulant use disorder. And what about patients who demonstrate progressively worsening heart failure and undergo evaluation for advanced therapies? Dr. Davis, how does a patient's history of stimulant use disorder factor into an evaluation for advanced heart failure therapies? Unfortunately, it still factors in quite heavily when considering left ventricular assist device or heart transplantation. Just like any other stimulant or drug use, for example, folks getting evaluated for heart transplant are asked to stop smoking. 
And certainly smoking a cigarette is, is more benign than using stimulants or fentanyl or anything else like that. But there is a high bar that's set in terms of different programs have different amounts of time. They like to see people in remission from their drug use, whether it's three months, more common, or six months. Some programs where I've worked have asked to see a patient actually formally participate in a drug rehabilitation program. But I think if they've been able to demonstrate remission of their disease, they should be considered and given a shot just like anyone else and be evaluated. Uh, though certainly, at least where I've worked currently and worked previously, that ongoing stimulant use, just like ongoing cigarette use or alcohol use, uh, does not, it's not an absolute contraindication uh, to the future, but it's a, an issue at the time. And so certainly this is where interventions earlier to get not just the, the drug use into remission, but thinking about the other social determinant of health issues that do impact advanced uh, therapy considerations, housing, food insecurity, social support, et cetera, that those are things we need to be thinking about concurrently, just like we would palliative care and other uh, referrals for other comorbidities along the way. This has been just such an eye-opening discussion. Dr. Azari, Dr. Davis, your passion for caring after this population is very apparent, and it's really helping us develop an appreciation for the nuances involved in diagnosing and managing, addressing stimulant use-associated cardiovascular illness. So let me ask you both now, what makes your heart flutter about addiction medicine and caring after patients with stimulant use disorder? I think that seeing a person change, despite everything that's stacked up against them, is so incredible. It's probably like the thrill that you all get when you open a coronary artery. But for me, seeing that happen, there's nothing better. The thing that struck me the most that I wasn't expecting was we did qualitative interviews of individuals after completing our first Heart Plus cohort in 2021. And the interviews, some of the themes that came out about how much this intervention meant to the patient, that you had a group of healthcare providers that cared about them, that wanted to see them do well, that were invested in their care and how moving that was for them. It struck me profoundly. You know, I love seeing people get on GDMT. I love seeing the ejection fraction come up and people feeling better. But I was really touched by, by their perspectives and how much this program meant to them. On uh, so many more levels than I was anticipating just from a, you know, a cardiology perspective. And that's now what really motivates myself and I'm sure Dr. Azari and the rest of the, our team to keep pushing this forward and, and making this an integral part of our clinical care offering at, at the hospital is just knowing this, this holistic benefit that can come to uh, this patient population. And so they're typically marginalized. It's, it's profoundly moving. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today and providing these incredible words of wisdom as well as inspirational stories of change. So to recap, we discussed common clinical manifestations of stimulant-associated cardiomyopathy, a general approach to treatment, pharmacologic and behavioral therapies for stimulant use disorder, as well as this great novel model of co-management like your innovative clinic started by Dr. Azari and Dr. Davis called HeartFlush. We're so grateful to you both for spending your time with us today, and we look forward to learning more from you over time. Thanks, Cardia Nerds. Thank you. Thank you so much. Boop. Boop.